0: Hello, and welcome to Episode 72 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. I recorded this conversation with poet, professor, translator, and editor Ilya Kaminsky on April 26, 2019 at Sarah Lawrence College, where Ilya was getting ready to read as part of the 16th Annual Sarah Lawrence Poetry Festival which, by the way, is a terrific three-day festival of poetry readings and panels. Check it out if you're in the area next April. It was raining the day I took the train from Manhattan to Bronxville, and I was feeling poorly. I'd had increasingly serious anemia for several months. None of the medical or alternative solutions to stop the bleeding that was causing the anemia had worked but I could not yet imagine that I would end up needing or agreeing to the hysterectomy that doctors described to me as the definitive solution. I had no idea how I would continue to manage these health problems, and if they got worse, would I be able to teach, travel, continue making this podcast? Would I be able to attend my son's graduation from high school? I was grateful to have been clear-headed enough to prepare for my conversation with Ilya but I wasn't sure how the recording would go. I was concerned about taking the train, concerned about getting dizzy and falling, concerned I'd forget to press record. I'd stopped driving a few months earlier, not trusting myself to be alert. Two weeks before recording this, my son came home to discover I'd left the stove on for several hours. Thank goodness nothing caught fire. In retrospect, things were pretty dire for me. But at that point, I was still trying to just go on with my life, trying to take it easy, whatever that meant, and hoping to find a non-surgical solution to the problem. I'd read and loved Ilya's book, Deaf Republic. I'd seen Ilya read with Erica Meitner at NYU a few weeks earlier and had been transported, truly, to another world, only to realize this other world was and had always been this world. I did not want to miss the opportunity to speak with Ilya about his work and life. Ilya Kaminsky was born in 1977 in Odessa, which at that time was part of the Soviet Union. He arrived in the United States in 1993 when his family was granted asylum by the American government. Ilya's beautiful piece, Searching for a Lost Odessa and a Deaf Childhood, about returning to Odessa in 1993, was published in the New York Times Magazine in 2018. You can find a link to that article, as well as links to the authors and texts Ilya and I discuss on our website, commonpodcast.com, where you can also sign up to become a patron of the show and for our per-episode newsletter that includes information about commonplace and often suggestions for social action related to each episode. In addition to his most recent extraordinary book, Deaf Republic, Ilya Kaminsky is the author of the wonderful book, Dancing in Odessa. He has co-edited several anthologies, including The Echo Anthology of International Poetry and In the Shape of a Human, I Am Visiting the Earth, Poems from Far and Wide. He has translated the work of many poets, including full-length translation volumes of Marina Tsvetaeva, Polina Barskova, and Guy Jean. Ilya has won many prizes and fellowships, including a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Whiting Writer's Award, and an NEA Fellowship. In addition to teaching, translating, and writing, Ilya has edited the podcast series International Poets in Conversation at the Poetry Foundation, which we discuss in this episode. He has also worked as a law clerk for San Francisco Legal Aid and the National Immigration Law Center, and as a court-appointed special advocate for orphaned children in Southern California. After living and teaching for several years in San Diego, Ilya currently teaches at Georgia Institute of Technology and lives in Atlanta. I did not know Ilya very well before we sat and talked together for Commonplace. I'd followed Ilya's work with great admiration and been interested in the way he seems to move through the literary world with authenticity, kindness, curiosity, and concern for others. After his reading with Erica, I got to hang out with Ilya and a bunch of other writers at Sammy's Noodles, but that was the only time we'd interacted in person. Despite how little time I'd spent with Ilya in person, there is a warm-hearted openness to Ilya that made me feel, as soon as we sat down together, as if we were old friends. We care about and are curious about many of the same things and have a similar sense of humor. The conversation was intense and intimate from the beginning. For most commonplace conversations, I prepare a list of about five to ten questions, even though I often only get to the first few and then let the conversation meander as it will. Usually I jot these questions down informally, for my eyes only. But this conversation, I typed up my questions word for word. Ilya is hard of hearing, having lost most of his hearing at age four after a case of the mumps and I wanted to make sure that it was as easy as possible for Ilya to know what I was asking. It quickly became clear that Ilya was capable of understanding, and gently teasing me, for my long-winded, too carefully worded questions, and I was able to abandon the typed-up questions about 20 minutes in. And thank goodness, because one of the delights of speaking with Ilya is the way his answers and arguments are beautifully unpredictable and lead me to new, unexpected territory. The difficulty understanding, when there was difficulty, was more on my side than on Ilya's. The poet Sally Ball told me that she went to a reading of Ilya's a few years ago, in which he arrived with a suitcase full of well-worn copies of his book that he distributed to the audience and collected afterwards. When I saw Ilya read, the audience was given Xeroxed packets of the poems he was going to read. Ilya does this to enable deaf and hearing-impaired audience members to follow the work and folks who may have trouble with Ilya's Russian accent. Few writers address the accessibility needs of their audience when reading from their work, and I've never been to a reading where everyone has the text in front of them. Ilya and I discuss accessibility, Ilya's reading style, translation, capitalism, teaching, the American obsession with newness and publishing as many books as possible, Russian fabulism, Isaac Babel, the meaning of life, and more. At one point, I mentioned that Ilya's reading style reminds me of laning, or reading from the Torah, and I imagine writing poems with cantillation marks. In case you don't know what I'm talking about, cantillation marks, or tropes as they are sometimes called, are marks that function a bit like musical notation, in that they show the reader how to sing the Torah portion. Ilya responds, saying that while other people have mentioned his reading style sounds like singing, he does not intend that. Ilya wonders if this sound, the sound of a person who cannot hear himself saying something urgent, is the most uncensored sound a person can make. He wonders if enacting the unknowable, as one does when reading from the Torah, especially if one does not understand Hebrew, calls for singing. Ilya, at that point in the conversation, pronounces the word sinjin, and I didn't know what he meant until he asks a series of questions that I completely failed to respond to. Ilya asks me, what is singing? At what moment are we compelled to sing, and why, and how is that related to speech? Reading Ilya's work, speaking with Ilya in person, and re-listening to Ilya while recovering from surgery made me think a lot about accessibility, clarity, transparency. Accessibility to spaces, power, meaning, clarity, politically, socially, physically, and literarily. In every commonplace conversation, I hear the excitement and anxiety of two people sitting face to face, understanding and misunderstanding each other in a particular moment in time. Two people reaching for each other, translating each other across a history of shared and disparate lived experiences, literary influences, and ideas. Ilya's Russian accent sometimes made it difficult for me to understand him immediately. Not understanding Ilya immediately, and my concern that he would be able to understand me, was an unexpected pleasure, and, like having the text in front of me at his reading, changed the experience, or revealed elements of the experience I hadn't noticed before. At times, I had to ask Ilya to repeat words or clarify a comment, rather than to assume, as I often do with native English speakers, that I understand what they're saying. It can be frustrating not to have immediate access to meaning. As a hearing person with abundant confidence in my ability to understand anyone speaking in English, as someone with a relatively sophisticated vocabulary who's good at understanding accented English, I expect to have immediate and relatively easy access to any and all speech. Having to slow down, being more careful to be understood and to understand, was difficult but joyous work and reminded me, in a way, of reading. I don't expect or necessarily want immediate access when reading, especially when reading poems. The feeling of narrative or of an image or of meaning coming into focus within the sea of language, the awareness of an idea or story taking shape rather than arriving fully formed, watching the inchoate become clear is one of my favorite things that art does. The combination of the mental fog of anemia, Ilya's accent, my physical exhaustion, my anxiety about Ilya's hearing, made me feel a bit like we were reading each other, or even dreaming each other, rather than speaking. This might also have to do with the fact that the night after recording this conversation, my relief and elation that it had gone well, that I had ventured out and returned home safely, were overshadowed by the advent of excruciating pain— which was probably because one of the fibroids was degenerating. That night was full of fever dreams in which Ilya spoke and sang to me all night in Russian and English, both of which made perfect sense to me and included detailed instructions on how to fly. I know I'm alighting different kinds of accessibility and potentially metaphorizing physical differences in problematic ways, I'm trying to describe the physical, mental, magical experience of reading and speaking with Ilya, but not in any way suggesting that anyone be purposefully denied access. I am thrilled to announce that a full transcript of this episode is available for download on our website. Many thanks to Omain Gruwich and Justin Smith for carefully transcribing this conversation. They are hard at work on the other commonplace conversations, and we hope to have transcripts available of all commonplace episodes within a year. I apologize to our deaf and hearing impaired audience that it has taken us this long to address this issue. We hope you will enjoy these transcripts and that they might also be of use to those of you who use these episodes in your classes or want to write about them. You can find the transcripts on our website, commonpodcast.com, and we will post via social media and our newsletter as more of the episode's transcripts become available. On our website, you can, of course, sign up to become a patron of the show. Commonplace has no ads or corporate sponsorship and relies entirely on listener donations. If you enjoy Commonplace and can afford a small or large donation or a monthly patron contribution, we'd be so grateful If you are already a Commonplace patron, thank you, thank you, thank you. For this episode, a random selection of Commonplace book club members, those who support the show at a level of $10 or more a month, will receive copies of Deaf Republic by Ilya Kaminsky, thanks to Grey Wolf Press, In the Shape of a Human, I Am Visiting the Earth, co-edited by Ilya Kaminsky, Dominic Luxford, and Jesse Nathan, thanks to McSweeney's Press, and The Great Enigma by Thomas Transtormer, thanks to New Directions. All patrons will receive access to Ilya's NYU reading from April 11, 2019, and a list of 15-plus books in translation recommended by Ilya Kaminsky and prepared especially for commonplace patrons. A quick note that there is one audio insertion within the conversation, When you hear Ilya read his poem in a time of peace, please know that this audio was recorded at NYU as part of the NYU Creative Writing Reading Series. The rest of the audio was recorded by me at Sarah Lawrence. I'd like to thank Jonathan Burkhalter and everyone at the Sarah Lawrence Poetry Festival for finding Ilya and myself a quiet place to record. Thank you to Soren Stockman and the creative writing department at NYU for making the audio of Ilya Kaminsky's reading available to commonplace. Finally, a great big welcome to Natalie Boyd, newly hired commonplace producer. I also want to let you know that commonplace will not release a new episode in August. And I invite you to go back and listen to some of our previous episodes. I'm still recovering from my surgery physically and emotionally I can think much more clearly now and am gaining physical strength every day, but I feel a kind of emotional whiplash from being sick for so long, sadness and frustration at the loss of months of work and energy, and still anger at the state of our healthcare system and the dearth of knowledge and interest in women's health. Many, many thanks to listeners who sent me emails or tweets of concern and support for my health I really deeply appreciate it. Commonplace is not taking the month off, even if we're not airing a new episode. We're rethinking and hopefully redesigning some elements of Commonplace and planning a terrific new season of intimate conversations. We're working on a two-part episode about Taiwan and an episode that will celebrate and investigate the release of my new book, Sound Machine, and my audio project of the same name. If any of you listeners have questions, you want to ask me about my new book, The Audio Project, or about Commonplace, please email me or tweet them, and I'll do my very best to answer. So, until September, have a wonderful, healthy, safe, magical summer. And now, here's Ilya Kaminsky. You asked me why I do this. Yeah. No, you asked me, why do people say yes? Yeah, true. Why did you say yes?
1: Uh, Curiosity. And I suppose the same as what you said earlier, the desire for conversation.
0: Yeah. The other reason that I do this is, you know, when I teach, I have to decide who I teach and read their books and prepare and It helps me, you know, make sure that I'm reading and reading and reading and thinking in order to teach. But this work is a different kind of preparation. And, you know, when I went to see you read, when I reread your book, when I read um, some interviews with you, knowing that I was going to speak with you face to face, it's a different kind of responsibility and like a different kind of pleasure. And I had all of these like thoughts and ideas about my own work, frankly <laughs> that i that really surprised me and I don't know if I would have had those thoughts if I was teaching your book
1: interesting interesting it, so you're saying that teaching is in some ways less introspective towards one's own work.
0: I think maybe I give myself more freedom to think about my own life in relation to the poet.
1: Well, just to illustrate what, what you just said, I actually asked this question uh, from my own experience because when I teach, I make notes and books like most of us do, and I do it with two different pencils, color pencils, or on two different sides of a page. Hmm. On one side, the notes for the class. And another side, the notes to self. Interesting. So, yeah, to my mind, because in our work, we're grasping with specific question of a moment. Whereas in teaching, we need to give a context for the work. And for our own work, sometimes we could care less about the context. We just want to learn about good verbs. Yeah. yeah you wanna,
0: yeah. yeah. And... Do you do anything with the notes that are just for you?
1: Yeah, I, I use them for me. Yeah. Obviously, oftentimes things overlap, mm-hmm. but I do find myself that when I'm in the middle of writing, I grasp these big questions, but also these technical questions. And the writers I teach, I have to do both, and I also have to keep in mind how much time I have and how many people are in the group and what level they are, and I have to make sure that everybody learns something. Mm-hmm. And that's all great and wonderful, and I love doing it. But I do have to say that I catch myself making notes to stuff towards a particular project I'm working on as well that might have nothing to do with teaching. And that is totally fine. I mean, it, it should be a different job. Yeah. Otherwise, it is probably not a very good teaching.
0: The other thing is... There are books that I love and poets and types of work that make me write. You know, it's like opening the door. Why are they? Well, one example is Leslie Scalapino, sure. who is a poet that whenever I read her, I start writing, but I've, ne- I've only taught her once and I don't love teaching her. I don't love to be responsible to make students understand her. And in the podcast, I don't feel responsible for people listening to understand the work. I only talk to people whose work I love. So it's not a a review. It's not criticism. It's sharing. And listeners can understand or identify or reject whatever they want. I don't feel responsible for their understanding the way I do with students.
1: So the moral of the story dear listeners, if you have any complaints, <laughs> our phone number is yeah. one, two, three, four, five, <laughs> six, seven, eight, nine, ten. We are anxiously awaiting your call.
0: <laughs> you know, it it's interesting too that you started off by asking me about you know, why I do this and why people say yes. Because preparing for this with you was interesting for me because I didn't know how much to write down and how good your lip reading was. I mean, my experience of speaking with you the other day was that you understood everything.
1: I'm not deaf at all. I'm a Russian spy.
0: (laughs) Okay. So the first thing I was going to ask you is your... Full-length poetry collection, Deaf Republic, came out recently from Graywolf Press. So the book is so powerful and unusual. It sort of reads like a lyrical play in some ways. It has like a novelistic quality to it. It has a story. It has characters. Um, A lot of contemporary poetry does not have those things or not in, in the same way. There's a cast of characters that are listed in the beginning as if it were a play, including Alfonso and Sonia, who are a husband and his pregnant wife, and Mama Galia. And the book also has this incredible cinematic quality. It's very visual. And I guess I just wanted to start out by asking you about the process of writing the book? Like when did you start writing it? When did these characters come into contact with you? Or when did they announce themselves to you? Did you work on other things at the same time? Or was this really consuming for you from beginning to end?
1: Thank you for your kind words and this wonderful mm-hmm. question. I come to US in for you. Yeah? and Dancing in Adyasa, my first book, came out in 2004. So I have been in the country for about 11 years. The project of writing and dancing in Adyasa was different, because I didn't really want or have any ambition at that time to write in English. Mm -hmm. I wrote in English for personal reasons, but I thought of writing poetry in the language of images because I felt that particular device, the image, uh, spoke both to who I was at that time and where I was as well. But I don't think I guess it's very much a book that tries to build a dwelling, a Russian, Ukrainian or Soviet huge dwelling in English. Hmm. And so I felt like I made myself a little home in English. Yeah. But by the time I was done, I already lived in America for 11 years, and I already was dating um, the woman I would marry, who is American, so we spoke in you know, to each other. Um, so doing another book where I would be writing on the same kind of a Soviet, Jewish, Russian, Ukrainian theme, just felt a little files, so I felt like I would be playing a Russian. Mm. And I just wasn't interested. I felt like I was more in transition. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't quite figure out in the beginning what that might be, what the book for that might be, because we all write out of almost pre situations that we have, and childhood is important, at least for a lyric for it, in my experience. So I knew also that I was a fabulist. Uh, coming from Eastern Europe, fabulism is a main tradition. So I knew those parts would be there inevitably, but I was also living in this country. I just um, about moved to San Diego, which is a border town, and I live for 12 years, now miles from a border. So that was very much a daily part of my life. And that Republic is a book that is, the process was really trying to find The images, the music, uh, the characters, if you will, that would speak to both United States and Ukraine. And yes, I had quote-unquote finished draft for probably 10 years. Was it the same? No, it wasn't the same. Um, I published it in magazines, um, sequences of 10 pages or longer that um, tried to, to do a version of this book. But to my mind, it either felt too Ukrainian or American in a way they didn't feel, right? And um, after a while, I found The arc which to my mind would speak to both the United States and where I come from. Mm. And then I thought, okay, the book is done. Having said that, of course, I don't really think of myself as a novelist. I do write prose, I write essays, but essay is a far more closer form to lyrics than... Um, a novel in my experience and so anytime i had to change plot i had to change the poems which was a big pain in the neck <laughs> every time i wrote a new poem i had to kill a character or something like that which was also not very healthy and so that was a ping pong kind of experience but i enjoyed it i have to say i'm i come from a background uh where a Publishing is not as important as in this country. Mm -hmm. You know, America is a capitalist country from the very beginning, and Protestantism also plays a large role. There's this work ethic. And I think sometimes we confuse work ethics with the frequency of output in published form. Write all you will, but why do you need to have a book every year and a half is beyond me? my immediate experience was the generation of my parents or my grandparents when people simply were not allowed to publish for decades. And so after thirty years somebody would come out with a book of forty pages and the book would be incredible. But forgive me, of course it's incredible. It's thirty years of work. <laughs> right. Um so that was immediate daily discovery in the 1990s, 1980s, we were flooded by these newfound classics. Everybody knew the name, but nobody read the work because it was not allowed to read and then suddenly we were flooded by these relatively slim books by writers who really did change 20th century Russian literature. And so it felt not necessary to publish a book immediately. I do realize that when I say that, I speak from a very privileged position. A lot of people are very kind to me and are willing to read my work in a manuscript form. And a lot of those people just happen to be talented writers in their own right. So in a way, I have 10 or so videos who I can just share my work with. Mm. And for America, 10 videos of poetry may not be allowed, But if you think of most countries in the world, um, most countries in the world are much smaller. Let's say I was recently in Lithuania. Lithuania has about two or three million speakers of Lithuanian language. So imagine out of this two or three million, how many poets are there? Right. So that's probably 10 poets that are published in well-known poets in the country, and that's it, right? So imagine all the poets in your country are your readers. So from that perspective, why do you need more than 10 best poets you can find?
0: Mm. Can I ask you a question yeah, about fabulism? Yeah. Um, Because Obviously, you have a relationship, a cultural relationship to the history of fabulism in Eastern European writing. But I was thinking about everything is running together in my mind between your essay that you wrote for The New York Times and interviews I read. So forgive me, I can't remember. But you said in part because in Odessa, the language went from Russian to Ukrainian that the town of your childhood didn't exist anymore. And you also wrote that part of the reason you chose to write in English initially was because your family initially did not understand English and that you, in a way, barely understood English when you first, first started writing. And that's a kind of interesting relationship to fabulism because the imagination... The way that the town in Deaf Republic is real and not real, exists, but we don't know when and we don't know exactly where. People can't understand each other sometimes or they choose not to. To me, this seemed both connected to fabulism as a type of literature, but also to your own personal experience of, in a way, having grown up in a place that doesn't exist anymore and moving between languages in a way that feels very unique to who you are. To what extent, if you're aware of it, was the decision to place these characters in an imaginary and yet real landscape come out of your own experience of not being able to go back to your childhood i mean russian is there for you it still exists but to have kind of traversed um, place and time and language in ways that most people don't quite experience
1: i will try to answer the question and then give some context Hmm. because there were a lot of wonderful and kind thing that you said, but it might be useful to have context. Um Personally, well, of course, most of what we write is connected to us, whether or not it's uh, imaginary. Um, one could go from biographical perspective, and that would be, um, my grandfather was killed by Stalin's regime and all that. And my, Grandmother went to Siberia and my father was adopted, so in some ways the book is pretty closely related to that story. Soviet Union was falling apart in the late 80s, early 90s, so there would be civil unrest, not in a proper, but nearby just in Moldova. and So that would also give context. To as far as the language is concerned, it and, and as far as fabulism in language, I just is a very strange place for Russian literature. In Russian literature, you can write literature if you live in Moscow or St. Petersburg. If you don't, you're an amateur. And that's been like that for 200 years, pretty much. Um, even Gogol, the great Ukrainian-born writer, is the father of Russian prose, really um, became nationally known after his St. Petersburg stories, even though he wrote about Ukraine before and all that. But Odessa was the first city in the empire, in a huge empire, uh, where writers from that city got recognized. And they they all went to Moscow and St. Petersburg too, but they were known at the Odessa school. And um, they got recognized because they didn't quite write in a language that was proper Russian re- language. It was very much Yiddish, Ukrainian, Greek, Bulgarian, Polish, Russian mixed up together. Yiddish was probably majority of influencers simply because it was the largest Jewish population in a specific city in the empire. Uh, but it was also an open city in terms of um, it was a seaport and so it didn't quite have as much as censorship control at other places in the empire had, and even after the Soviets took over, there was still a seaport, meaning four foreign ships came in. It was also a tourist town and a party town um so everybody came there for vacation and then finally, when it got to the more Soviet point in the seventies and nineties when it was becoming a boring Soviet town. Um, something really curious happened. Uh, they adopted April 1st, the full day, as a national holiday. And it was huge, not in Soviet Union proper, but in Odessa it was bigger than, say, Christmas. Millions of people would be on the streets celebrating the full day. So Odessa kind of became what they call Soviet Union capital of Lafayette. Hmm. And it is shut down with a pretty tragic history, the history of pogroms and all that. German-occupied and all that. So that mix of tragedy and laughter of not quite Russian language really is a fabulous mix, a make-believe kind of world embodied in language. It is not just narrative. It's not just a story. The story is there, of course. I just told you a story. Mm -hmm. But um, one could say just a sentence and the rest of USSR would know where one comes from just by the tonality of language, just by the velocity of language, if you will. Know. And um, for me, as a kid, the really breaking point when I got interested in literature uh, was I came home, uh, I was, you know, like most youths, 11, 12, curious about books but not really caring because there's so much world outside but the country is falling apart plus you're learning to, s- to smoke for the first time plus you're thinking about dating you know the books there's somewhere else in your mind um, and yet I came home and there was a book on a kitchen table. It was open, and it was Isaac Babel's short stories. Isaac Babel is a brilliant short story writer and all that, but what really captured my attention was that Babel was writing in a language that my parents still spoke. Mm -hmm. It was not the language that I saw on a national television. It was not the language that officials at my school would speak. Uh, It was not a party speak, it was not even Tolstoy speak. It was very much private language, but I saw it in a book. And then I thought, oh, books can do that. And that private relationship to literature, for me, is very lyrical. And in fact, Isaac Babel, His books were published in my lifetime in Russia in in the 80s, but they were not really available because they were so popular and so few were published, so people would memorize them by hearts. The whole short story is Hmm. five pages or more. And that shows you the lyrics in my language, how it lends itself to memory. And that also shows you the kind of intimacy of being able to carry the whole thing in your body and tell it to another human. So in that way, fabulism is interesting to me, not just as, oh, here is a story, my friends, but what does it do to our speech? And what is the relationship between our speech and our language? Mm -hmm. Because for my mind, poetry is most interesting, is when speech is liberated from language.
0: Okay, I have a selfish question. Mm -hmm. So Deaf Republic has moments of joy and pleasure and humor, but it is ultimately a very dark book filled with despair. And my next book, which is coming out, is a dark book filled with despair, mostly personal. Uh, You know, my sense is that you and I are both very funny people who like to laugh and find humor in the darkest things but the work what is that like for you you know reading after reading to get up and have these poems which are extraordinary and audiences are responding very positively but do you feel like oh, i wish i had something a little funny to read or or lighter or more optimistic or do you feel like this is what i have and do you have to enter into kind of the world of the book and the mindset of that place?
1: It's uh, very much uh, on point, this question. The only thing I would probably slightly change is, I would change the word despair to the word anger. Mm. Because yeah, um, for was a refugee coming to America and watching America pretty much becoming the place I came from. And the um, response is under whether or not um, America will stay the way it is now. Uh, And now it's pretty much in a downward spiral. Or maybe it is just a temporary thing, and tomorrow we will vote all the bastards out. (laughs) That is the positive uh, hope. But whether or not we might end up in a positive outcome, we are still in a pretty dark hole right now. The fact that we have what we have is cause um, for concern, to put it lightly. So the emotion is not just but uh, more active, which is, to my mind, India. Having said that, William from this book was more of a physical labor, I would say, simply because um, I'm pretty conscious of the fact that when I get up and read just by the virtue of being an awkward, hard of hearing person who doesn't speak English very well, I'm perceived as someone who might be exotic to an American audience. So when I talk about things I talk about people actually relax and imagine Ukraine. Mm. And it is very American thing to do, to relax and imagine problems elsewhere. And my job for Battle of Wars is to show the music of our times, which is here now. And yes, it is pretty much a mirror of Ukraine. We are not at war the way Ukraine is, and yet people are literally encamped on American soil. And that is the time in which we live. Mm. And the emotions that I have towards that time is anger. And am I comfortable having that emotion? No. Would I be able to live with myself not having that emotion? No. That is the answer. To go one step further, it would be very easy to put myself uh, in a victimized position and the challenge and vocation that I'm supposed to have as far as I'm concerned is not to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Simply because I am a part of the majority. I'm a white man in America. By virtue of that, I am one of the guilty. And that is the other conflict that for better or worse the book should show. And I think on a page, hopefully, that shows that. It's probably a good thing for me to be challenged and to be uncomfortable uh, because that's how a white man in America right now should feel Mm. Um, because this is a world we created and it's not a good one.
0: I want to ask you more about reading, but I'm curious about the first poem and the last poem in the book, which really locate the author or the speaker as an american in the united states and make that connection between uh this imagined place being a mirror to the united states and you know very uh fiercely and movingly at what point did you decide to put those like end pieces around uh the central text because in the main part of the book you are not the eye anywhere of the book you are yeah, in some ways yes yes you are did you feel pressure to make it make the connection between present day america and uh the rest of the book or did that was that something were you worried that american audiences would miss it you know uh
1: Honestly, looking back on it, one would think that I would feel the pressure, but I really didn't from the outside. I think American audience is really comfortable with my Russian being Russian. Mm -hmm. What I just actually the first and the last poem in the book chronologically were really, I were the first and the last poem in Mm. the book. I wrote, um, We Lived Happily During the War at the very start of Bush's presidency. Mm-hmm. I was visiting uh, a poet, Eleanor Wilner, when she lived in um, Massachusetts for a year. And it was huge snowstorm. And it took a while to drive to get to see her. And Bush, either and already was obviously prepared for war, it, It was already happening. I don't remember it was so many years ago. But she was really furious. Mm. And that fury was so contagious that I just sat down and wrote a poem. And obviously, I I don't really write poems from first drafts at all. I'm not that kind of writer ever. But that was the case for that poem.
0: But I was hoping maybe you could read the first poem. Yeah, great.
1: Believe it happily during the war. Believe it happily during the war. And when they bombed with other people's houses, we protested, but not enough. We opposed them, but not enough. I was in my bed, around my bed, America was fallen. Invisible house, by invisible house, by invisible house, I took a chair outside and watched the sun. In a sixth month of a disastrous rain, in a house of money, in a street of money, in a city of money, in a country of money, a oh great country of money, we, but leave us, leave it happily during the war. Thank you. Last poem in the book, which is also an American poem, happened in a similar way. I was not in America, I was in UK. But two poets, uh, Patricia Smith and Carolyn Forshaw, were doing a presentation in UK. And um, it was already Trump's presidency. Mm. And Carolyn was asking, Patricia questions on a public forum. And Patricia just stood back and told the story of how her relatively, not fully adult, but grown-up children come to her in the middle of the night and tell her that they are afraid to be in this country. And that was a very moving experience to hear her speak about that. Mm -hmm. And the poem was a response to that conversation. This poem, I hope, will bring it a little bit closer to home, okay? It's called, In a Time of Peace. In a Time of Peace. Inhabitant of earth, for time, years, I once found myself in a peaceful country. I watched neighbors open their phones To watch a cop demanding a man's driver's license. When a man reaches for his wallet, the cup shoots into the car window, shoots. It is a peaceful country. We pocket our phones and go to the dentist to pick up the kids from school, to buy shampoo and basil. Ours in a country in which a boy shot by police lies in the pavement. For hours we see in his open mouth the nakedness of the whole nation. We watch. So I didn't really have pressure. No, what I did want to have was a kind of fable that would be true to who I am, and I am a person who is in transit, is both here and there for better or worse. So the image of a boy lying in the middle of the street is a very American image, and yet it is also a very Ukrainian image. So I don't really see any any need to push it one way or another. It is unfortunately already there. Mm The body of a boy lies on a pavement exactly like the body of a boy. It is a peaceful country and it clips our citizens' bodies effortlessly the way the president's wife dreams her toilets. All of us still have to do the hard work Of dentist appointments, of remembering to make a summer salad, basil, tomatoes. It is a joy, tomatoes and a little salt. This is a time of peace. I do not hear gunshots, but watch birds splash over the backyards of the suburbs. How bright is the sky? At the avenue spins on its axis. How bright is the sky? Forgive me, how bright.
0: So when you read, you often or always hand out the text of what you're going to read so that people can read along um, as you're reading out loud. And I found it such an interesting experience and very powerful and unsettling because there were certain things that I noticed that changed for me. I liked having the text in front of me, but it also having the text in front of me and knowing that everyone around me had the text in front of me, what I started to notice that I'd never felt at a poetry reading was that when I would look up at you And take my eyes off the text, it felt so intimate and almost forbidden. And I thought, this is so interesting because normally at a poetry reading, I just stare at the poet and I don't feel that I'm doing something inappropriate. I'm just looking at the person who's speaking. But because I was looking down, there was this charged kind of I don't know I don't know how to describe it have has anyone mentioned this to you before of of how the process of having the text changes one's expectations of what the live poetry reading is about
1: this is interesting I never had that experience personally so I don't really know how to respond other than that speaking from disability community, uh, it's a pure question of access, uh, because many people may not have an interpreter or may not understand their self while still needing a, an an interpreter of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, So from that perspective, having a text is useful. Uh, I'm just trying to provide a public service <laughs> because of accent. But um, it is interesting to see what you're saying. Personally, I always struggle uh, with an idea of uh, poetry reading as such, or rather what people call poetry performance, uh, because I don't really understand why it is necessary. It often feels like um, poets are on the road trying to sell their books, uh, which is fun, but I can read the book at home. What I am interested in when I'm reading a poem is trying to revise it again. I'm an obsessive reviser, obsessive writer. We write out of our deepest obsessions and what some call muse, might we leave this drive to write. And of course, once the book is published, you can't, Really change that much unless you have Robert Lowell or something like that. (laughs) Um, So I tried to write it again by the voice, um, putting in different analogies, different syntax. Syntax, in a way, are like traffic laws, you know, it tells the video want to stop, want to speed up, want to go 60 miles per hour, want to go five miles per hour. And voice is a useful vehicle for that. Mm -hmm. So For myself, I'm trying to learn more about syntax when I read poems out loud. And maybe the charge that you notice that you describe it simply comes from watching a person trying to write out loud. Mm. That is one explanation I might have. Who knows? I I don't do it in the mirror, so I don't really know how to respond.
0: Well... I understand that the practice of providing the text is an accessibility question, but it also has uh, these kind of perhaps unintended effects. Wonderful,
1: everybody should do it.
0: Yes, no, I think that's right. And so also one of the effects for me was that you read almost like singing. And to me, the most similar thing in my experience, is to hear someone reading from the Torah. And I know you're not religious, so I'm not uh, assuming that this is intentional um, or that this connection might even be meaningful to you. But I started to think about what it would mean to have, I think they're called cantillation marks, the marks that are in the Torah that tell the reader how to sing the words. And I don't know a lot about this, but what I know is that they're not just how to sing. They also have meaning and particularly syntactical meaning. And I think I've always uh, kind of struggled with how the poem looks on the page and whether in my own writing, I'm using the line break and the way the poem is laid out on the page to teach the reader how to hear it or how to read it out loud either in their mind or you know in a space or whether the way it looks on the page is visual and i think it's both for me but hearing you read and imagining other kinds of line breaks or these you know invisible cantillation marks or tropes in the rise and fall of your singing really was so interesting to me. And now to hear you say that it's like watching a person try to write aloud is deeply fascinating to me. Once you have had the experience of performing the book, do you think if you could, you would change the line breaks or you would change the way it looks on the page Based on the experience of reading it over and over again to the audience.
1: Thank you. You have this wonderful questions. It's really like five questions in one. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, don't be <laughs> sorry. Be happy. I'm happy. I'll just try to unpack it a little bit. Um, people say, say that. Other people say that it's like singing. I don't really intend it to be like singing at all. I then for better or worse, would you my Think of a Sintian is really a person who doesn't hear mm-hmm. what they say. Say something that's meaningful to them, and in some ways, it is probably the most unsensitive sound that the human body can make. It is the sound that they do not hear, even though it is urgent. So that might be one response. Uh, from the perspective of Judaism, um, I'm definitely a Soviet Jew, whether or not there, such things still exist, it's an open question, <laughs> um, but that's how I grew up. But it also means that I did not go to synagogue very often except to buy Massa, simply because it was the cultures that did not encourage that at all. I'm a cultural Jew, meaning one learns that one is Jewish and one is stopping a street and calls a joke to Jew. Mm. But with that comes a certain urgency as well. From American perspective, since you spoke from that, I wonder simply because so many American Jews as far don't know Hebrew. They are enacting something that's unknowable. And it is interesting to me that it is done in the process of Syndium uh enacting something that's unknowable oh, yeah. calls for Cindian. That is curious then, because it makes a, a follow as ask a follow-up question, what is syndian? Uh, at what moment are we compelled to sing yeah. and why? Um and how does that, that relate to a spiritual situation? What was the final part of the question, would you remember?
0: I guess would you change the way the poems look on the page? After performing them
1: I, th- I certainly often want to do that, yes, mm-hmm. I got to do it a couple of times with dancing in you know just, uh, some poems, at least two in dancing, you know you' know, just, uh, that after reading them, i wanted to change, but thought, okay, I really shouldn't change it in the published book, I just don't read them anymore mm-hmm. because I feel compelled to read them radically differently than they are on the page, so yeah, but I suppose nothing is unusual with that. Many, many writers want to change their books after the books are published. One poet I know said that she actually wanted to buy every single copy, so it's not not in the stores anymore. Wow. Um, But, you know, that is a natural human reaction to hearing one's voice and the answering machine and asking, Mm -hmm. who is that?
0: Mm. I mean, I understand what you're saying about the way that you read has to do with many things, um, including being hard of hearing and the sound of somebody speaking who can't hear in the same way, but you don't speak the way you read. And and most I don't
1: speak poetry right now, I speak about it.
0: Right. And mo and most poets don't speak Poet
1: poetry is an urgent speech. Mm-hmm. To my mind, lyric impulse is called impulse for a reason. Yeah. Poem is not about an event. It's not mere information. It, it is an event. So when you're enacting you are in as event, what happens to your voice?
0: Mm-hmm. This isn't a question, but I'm thinking about the practice. I don't know if you do this in your classes, but uh, sometimes I'll have a student read someone else's poem out loud. And it's always very uh, uncomfortable, but also, in a strange way, liberating to hear your poem in someone else's voice. I wish there were a way to hear what someone else hears
1: when they read. Yeah, I want once in a while, not often, but once in a while, I ask them to read a poem and then instead of writing comments right away, the way we're doing workshops, I just have people raise their hands at the lines when they moved. Mm. And it's an interesting reaction. I think in a workshop, people are often compelled to say, this is what I would do with the poem. And I think in my experience, what might be most useful for a writer is to know what it is that they're good at, Mm -hmm. what it is that they can build on. And knowing what is working really allows one to think creatively about what is not working as opposed to and what is not working right away and then feeling like one is standing under a waterfall that's somewhat close to Niagara Falls in know. force.
0: Also, in my experience, there's so much pressure to fix someone's poem or to fix people, right? To make people write in a way that seems normal or that seems
1: usual and well that is where the question of two things number one poetry being too close to academia. Right. But number two, and probably more tragically, academia being way too close to corporation. And so we find poetry in the middle of a corporation that pretends not to be a corporation. That is very author American phenomena and um, a little scary to me.
0: Yeah, and it, it brings us back to something you were talking about earlier, which is, you know, I think there's many ways of thinking about what makes something poetry, but two competing ideas would be, one, that poetry is sort of like the most beautiful, most concise, most careful language, and the other, which I think is what you and I respond much more to is that poetry is language that is urgent, that is uncensored in certain ways, and that is full of mistakes and uh, usages that are in a way not literary. It's very hard to have students or even myself trust enough that maybe what is going to be most interesting in their work is if they can go towards the place in themselves that is most unusual, that is most broken, that is most full of real urgent desire and confusion and doubt and mistakes. But it's, it's hard because, you know, if you're teaching poetry in a university, these are usually students who Uh, have been praised for doing it right or doing it a certain way. Um, And then the university is absolutely a business in which we have this transactional relationship of grades and salaries, and, and we are then encouraged to do teaching right, you know, in a certain way. And what I respond to as a reader is the places where someone is doing something in language and i just think i didn't know you could do that or this is so wild you know and it, and i almost feel like is this happening you know this is breaking the rules that's i think what drew me to poetry and what i respond to most in in writing it doesn't necessarily have to be experimental you know the way we talk about experimental but that feeling that the poet is really out there it's hard to to get that in the classroom or it's hard for me i don't know if it's hard for you but
1: thank you that was very beautifully put i would make a few additions maybe yeah. to my mind it's not really one way over another in terms of making something very beautiful or making something very uh, not beautiful but urgent mm-hmm I think in literary history, we always had two parallel votes, and one would be the outsider and another would be a classicist, and a classicist would go towards the beauty and um, order, and outsider would go towards an alternative way of seeing things. But I think what in America we sometimes forget is these responses are worse often outside the responses. Classicism in literary history usually happens in a moment of absolute chaos. Just to think about poets who are very classical theorists, um, it happened not too long before the fall of the empire. So Horace had a reason to be classical. And you can already see that breaking up in the work of contemporaries, somebody like Catullus or another contemporary, somebody like Propertius, who is already um, breaking with classicism by combining the erotic and elegy, which was unthinkable for the time. Or in our more or less time 20th century, you see a classicist Sachin uh, writing a really uh, broken up sequence called Requiem, but in a very classical language of Russian liturgy as a response to the horror of Stalin and trying to make sense of it in a very much uh, a system of Requiem, a classical Requiem. Or you see somebody like Milosz who is very much a classical poet, translator of the Bible into Polish, uh, translator of many world classics into Polish, trying to make sense out of a um, complete destruction of the city of Wartha in the World War II. So, this impulse to make things beautiful in the face of destruction is really kind of a standing up to that destruction. Whether on the other side of what you said, closer to what you said, would be in fact the very heart of American tradition, Whitman and Dickinson. Dickinson probably couldn't write a proper English sentence for the life of her, but she wrote sentences that are so much more beautiful, so completely outside of the box. And of course, she lived in a very Protestant environment, so she had every reason on earth to not give us a rhyme when we expected the rhyme in her stanza, or to make a complete new meaning of a simple literary device we know of as Dash, to make music of dashes according to Emily Dickinson, not according to expected English syntax. So I think in some ways they are really the same thing. The question is what time period one lives in, and um, poets of your, my generation, poets of the 90s uh, in the United States, the Clinton age really, which followed it kind of George H. Bush's age. Mm-hmm. Um, those were the pretensions of normality, which people knew wasn't there. So this desire to find the brokenness in that generation makes complete sense. Uh, I wonder what will happen in the age of Trump when um, the mask is taken off the American normality and we see the uh, complete barbarian, and, and the mask is taken off with the skin. So I'm sure it hurts. But I wonder if it will be beauty or brokenness that will come out of that heart that we see right now. I don't have an answer, I just have a curiosity. Yeah. Um, but I do want to also point out that there is a deep joy of writing. For me writing is an ecstatic experience and I'm looking for a language that does that. Uh, it is also an erotic experience, it is physical experience. Lorca said poet is a professor of five senses, not professor of creative writing. Hmm. about the five sentences. So what it is that senses do on the page, what parts of speech for a given time period must open our senses to us, make them available to us. The um, commitment of any state, be it Roman Empire, German Empire, Russian Empire, Chinese Empire, American, and so forth, the project of the empire, all of us, is to dull the senses. And the project of a poet always is to wake up the senses. So there might be different ways of doing it depending on empire or the absence of one. Uh, for example, uh, a poet brilliant, probably great uh, poet of the late 20th century, say somebody like Trans Strummer did not need to break the grammar in order to write moving poetry, because Trans Trumer didn't live in the empire. So it was a different dynamic. However, Transstrumer did live in a very mild version of capitalist slash socialist environment. So Transtrumer went for a kind of um, non-religious, religious experience, which mm. is from Saratransk advanced, Dental experience. Um, you couldn't really imagine a religious poet in Sweden of 1980s. But you could easily imagine somebody like Transferma. And that's exactly what we got.
0: Have you written about this? You just so beautifully and brilliantly revealed to me how American my question was that to have a a, a binary between the outsider and the classicist.
1: For better or worse.
0: Yes, is now that you Talked about this, I can see that it's part of this, like, very sort of ahistorical, short sighted American obsession with innovation, right? Without understanding the way in which um, beauty and uh, finding beauty can be a response to devastation and destruction. If you haven't already written this essay, I hope you will.
1: You're kind. Um who knows, maybe <laughs> uh, I am writing essays, but they usually come as surprise, not as a project. Okay. Um but I think it is interesting that you mentioned the word innovation. Mm-hmm. Another word that is often popular. Innovation was popular again in the 90s. Right. The word that's popular in Now I don't know what's right now in our, in our decade, but in 2000s, the big word was surprise also. Mm. And what is the danger of surprise? Second reading, second time, it's no longer surprising. So, so when you hear surprise, uh, my impulse is always to ask surprise to what, to my mind or to my teeth? Uh, if the poem is surprising to my teeth or to my nose, uh, then it's probably an, in, an interesting surprise that will survive reading number 55. But if it is just to my mind, my mind is probably be bored and a reading that's one and a half mm-hmm. because I already know the answer. As far as the goes, that is interesting because there is real pressure and most of our friends, really, to write a book that is different from the books that people just published a year and a half ago. Number one, why? Number two, how? Number three, what? for? And number four, who's asking? Yeah. Because frankly, if you look at any poet, we love, say, we just talked about Whitman and Dickinson, those people don't change. Mm -hmm. They don't change at all. Other people I mentioned it, who don't change. William Shakespeare, don't change. Instead, they go deeper. Mm-hmm. They try to enlarge the possibility. Uh, it is almost like we are really in America doing an exact replica. of uh, Right now, we are in Sarah Lawrence College, which is right next to the mall. So I just came from a mall. In a mall, they were in a process of changing winter closes, to spring closes, And that's exactly what seems to be the pressure with the next book and the next book. Oh, it's a new season. We're putting new clothes in. All the old clothes go away. But what did we learn from that previous experience? Why do we have to discard what we learned instead of going deeper with it? I mean, we don't know why we're here on this planet we don't know where we're going. We don't know what happened before we were born, after we die, and we don't know what happens tomorrow. So why don't we try to dig deeper and asking this question instead of just creating an artificial new project? Life will provide us with projects. We don't need to provide life with projects.
0: You asked me why I do this, and this is why.
1: You took of stop.
0: No. Let's talk a little bit about translation. There's so many important uh, reasons to read work that was written in a language other than your own or your primary language, and there's so many important reasons to engage in the act of translation. One of them is to make visible some of our cultural assumptions about what makes writing good, what is writing for, who are we writing for, why are we writing, things like this question of make it new? Why? Why? And so I wanted to just ask you, you know, I know that you've translated, uh, you've done single volume translations of uh, several incredible poets. Also, you've done work to support the the translation work of others, and you've been the editor of the Echo Anthology of International Poetry, Gossip and Metaphysics, Russian Modernist Poems and Prose, and then we were talking about this just briefly, A God in the House, Poets Talk About Faith, uh, and Homage to Paul Celan. And then also you were the director of the Poetry Foundation's Harriet Monroe Poetry Institute for two years or three years. So I just wanted to ask you, you know, both as a poet for whom Russian is your first language, but you now most you live in the United States and you are mostly writing for an American audience, but also just as a poet, can you talk about the importance to you of translation in all of these different ways and you can pick one I know I keep asking you 20 questions in one but well um,
1: there is a danger of reading too much translation mm. and of course there is a danger of not reading translation as well so I don't want to do a party line here yeah? mm-hmm. the danger of reading too much is losing the music of your native language and that arguably happened to me sense generation. I want Name names, who got really drunk and translated literature. They discovered so many. Neruda, Vallejo, and so forth and so uh-huh. on. You know, French poets, Chinese poets, Russian poets, Polish poets. But, um, of course, Ahmadova in Russian is a highly formal poet who is literally trying to make a liturgy with her rhymes. Mm-hmm. And what we got in English is a blank verse, and if you imitate that blank verse, find good for you. But it's not really what Akhmadova is doing at all. Um, so there's a danger of that. It's what I call cross-cultural shopping. Mm-hmm. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. And, and you move your shopping cart to the checkout line. But on the other side, of course, we have a um, situation one, poets are just feeding their friends. And then um, we end up having, um, like Alice in, in Wonderland, uh, a room of mirror, a hall of mirrors, where all we see is ourselves. And then we start thinking that our empire is at the center of the universe. Uh, but as everybody in the world, especially now with the internet, know who American poets are. If you go to Denmark, they know who American poets are. If you go to Chile, they know who American poets are. Do American poets know poets from Bolivia? Probably not so much. Mm -hmm. So this kind of absence of conversation in a world that is full of conversations puts us at a disadvantage. We end up looking in the mirror instead of looking at the window. And translation opens up a window uh, instead of a mirror. Um, So that is an argument for translation, of course. And of course, I believe in translation, even though as a practicing translator, I would have to tell you the truth that the concept of translation is complete absolute fairy tale. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely impossible to translate one text into another and say, I did exactly the same thing because, of course, I didn't just speak for the language that's my native modern Russian literature began, let's say, for the sake of a number, there wasn't a particular year, but let's say for the sake of a number, 1824, when uh, Alexander Pushkin was writing his novel and verse, his epic, which is very much at the heart of Russian culture. Uh, What is 1824 for English literature? Byron was dead by 1824, and who the heck is Byron? You know, there were at least a dozen Writers of world magnitude in English tradition before Byron. So that tells you how anthropologically different Russian and American and English literatures are. Mm. How is it possible who's qualified to translate Svitaeva Blake? Mm. I mean, who would be at the same chronological age of a language? Russian literature, you start counting from 1824, and that's an arbitrary number, but still to give your context. less than 200 years old. How do you translate literature in the English which had been around since 11th century? And of course there were some church chronicles, some very, very few epics in Latin literature, but nothing compared to Magnitude, a Green Knight, or a Pearl, or, or, or many other texts, or well, definitely nothing compared to Contemporary Tales. Which can be a great advantage for Russian literature if you look at it from a modern perspective. I mean, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky were writing uh, great epic novels when Russian literature was less than 100 years old, so it would completely natural for them to write great epic novels, but no one of their contemporaries in Western countries could possibly equal the magnitude of that, because we already had epic novels here, so Tolstoy could win Homer and then write War and Peace in Russian, and then allow him to do things that would be unthinkable in say, Yakla So there is a great advantage to this use, too. It is not only a disadvantage. advantage. So for me, translation is interesting not because it answers questions, but because it allows us to ask more questions. Which is why, really, we have a different translation of Dante, probably three or four different translations of Dante every single year. Mm -hmm. Because we we are never satisfied by translations. There is always a new fantasia, a new dream that can come for the expected text. And most translators will tell you that a great poet deserves many translators. And you know that the poet is great not just because the culture is pushing for more translations, but because so many interesting minds are fascinated mm. um, by going back to the text and rediscovering really it anew.
0: You know, uh, John Keane in our translation episode talks about one of the things that is so important about translation is that especially he was talking about for African-American people to have no access to the history of black and brown people writing in a diaspora in other languages about the black experience um, is so limiting so that you you think that, for example, your racialized experience is only in the context of The American experience is so limiting. And I think, on a very deep level, we have the idea that it's not very American, maybe, but it's very important to uh, have access and understanding to other people's culture, history, daily lived experience. And you're talking about um, some of the ways in which the language and from an anthropological perspective, it's impossible to really translate that accurately. This uh, little thing here was something that Claire Kavanaugh said in that podcast. And here she's talking about some of the dangers in a way of translation, not linguistically, But culturally or content, can I just read this one little quote? So so Claire Kavanaugh was um, speaking with you and Adam Zagajewski, and she said, so much of the myth of Polish poetry in the States or in English language poetry has been about the poetry that survives and triumphs over oppression. Sometimes that would really irritate me because it struck me that American poets were, I called it, borrowed martyrology. You don't suffer that way in capitalism. You suffer from different things. You suffer from not having an audience. You suffer from having to figure out a way to be oppressed that other people will even care about. There are poets that really drove me crazy because they would be doing persona poems from every place in the third world because just being an American poet teaching at a university in the United States and being frustrated and feeling other people's pain, it's how do you do it? I'm curious, but I'm also a little frightened. It's a new phase. And I, I'm i interested in the way she brings up a potential problem of reading poetry and translation or reading, immersing yourself in the texts of another culture and another time. And, you know, you're saying, first of all, you can lose your own music, the music of your own language, but also you can start to imagine that the only justification for writing a poem is this other experience, which is not your experience. So, I mean, mostly I feel like we have so little poetry and literature in translation in the United States that the dangers of translation are irrelevant compared to the benefits of translation, and we're, we just don't have enough. But every once in a while I think about some of the dangers um, or some of the complications, I think, as is maybe, is maybe a better...
1: I think she's responding as an American. Yeah. Um, I might have a slightly different response. Mm. But I do want to follow up on what you said a little earlier about what Gentune said, mm-hmm. about just different experiences uh, in diaspora mm-hmm. and how they relate to American experiences. When I edited iconology of International Poetry, I was looking for poems from all over the world to put in a book, to have a representative book. And I was struck over and over and over again how really talented, brilliant poets who happen to translate from other languages into English. Some of these poets are our classics, really. Let's say from French. Mm-hmm. they Probably every fifth American poet born between 1901 and 1945 or 1965 even. Every fifth would probably be translating from French. Mm -hmm. And they would all go translate a poet from Paris and zero percent, if you look at high-profile poets, would translate poets from Francophone Africa. Even though they all translated poets from the Central-Western perspective. Mm-hmm. That also shows you America. So it's not just translation, but what has been translated. And in putting together an ontology, that was extremely frustrating because you know the work exists, but it is just not available to you or it's available, but in a more scholarly translations, And you know, if you put it in a book, We will also misrepresent Mm -hmm. the work because it would be next to a translation done by truly talented poet. So it would be vastly undervalued because it's just not the same quality of work in English. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are all those kinds. And that is the brilliance of John Jean. Himself is, here he is, a supremely gifted poet and fiction writer translating the work that is otherwise not available in English from talented writers, mm. talented translators. As far as what Claire Kavanagh has said, I think this is very interesting because I agree with you. I don't really think that um, we have nearly enough translations to worry about the danger. but I think the romantic need of being a larger than life poetic figure and so appropriating that in one way or another, or 55th way, is probably the are of many folks living under capitalist system. Mm-hmm. Um, because frankly, I was born under Brezhnev, and I was 16 when USSR fell apart. So a lot of that was very exciting. Mm. Uh, the right of wrong was so, so clear. You would never think about, oh, I'm not sure. Mm. Capitalist system is designed by definition to make a person living in it unsure. Mm. Most of our liberals in this country are unsure. And when somebody becomes a little more sure of their convictions, people say that they're radical. Uh, On the right side, people are very, very sure, but mostly, vastly misinformed. And that is partly a design of a system as such. I think also people are unsure simply because even taking a loan from a bank, that might be also mining Diamonds in African continent um, is vastly ethically wrong, and yet you may not even know it's the case. Mm-hmm. So buying a T-shirt or a sweatshirt from a discount can be very, very ethically grave, mm. and yet you just buy a T-shirt. And most people, even most informed people, feel uneasy or sometimes we pretend not to feel because there's so many feelings but that is also very much a design of a system
0: wait ha- how does capitalism benefit from making people so unsure
1: well then you fight little battles you fight very very you small, fight battles. small battles and nobody of... questions the system uh-huh like uh just as we talked about universities when we both agreed that university becomes too much like a corporation, but on a day-to-day level, we don't really talk about that. We don't question that. We question a thousand and one other smaller things, and that is the design of the system. Right. And that is just, I'm talking about one example that we both worry about because we work on it. But you can talk about elections. You can talk about, um. I don't know, most recent election, we had the difference between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, or even the difference between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, which you and I would probably instantly agree is the vast difference. And yet, really, really, they're both paid by exactly the same corporations, right. exactly the same 20 co- corporations already, or every single politician in this country. But do you see a lot of people protesting in front of White House? I don't. Mm-hmm. So there are all those myriad of little details that are flood really flooding our daily lives. And that is the design of the system. That is what the system wants to do. Uh, whereas in Soviet system, oppressive regime, uh, you don't have this illusion of partial freedom. You don't have this illusion of partial choice. You have very, very clear chance to lose. There so is it's absolute clarity. But I find this challenge of living under capitalism and responding to it as a lyric poet, far more interesting than being this romantic figure of standing up to oppression under Hitler hmm. and so forth, simply because it's so much more nuanced. There are so many intricacies. I'm not saying it is more fun. I'm saying it is interesting. And it is very, very new in the history of humankind. This is the first time a human brain has to deal with really a computerized system, which is designed technologically and socially to disarm us.
0: Yeah, I'm just I'm gonna listen to this conversation over and over and hear something new each time, but this complexity of how to write in resistance to capitalism also acknowledging the freedoms that we have to write in resistance to capitalism and how it, it is it well yeah. this
1: is the this is this is exactly the question you say that exactly right and let's dwell on it a little bit how do we write against capitalism acknowledging that we have kind of freedom of doing so but let's stop for a moment so let's go and I'm going to try to not talk so much about politics anymore probably do too much but just to give a little bit of an illustration Mm -hmm. so we have this illusion right now that we have this freedom and I'm going to speak from disability perspective disabled body in this country you place it in a hospital it is not a political body. Mm-hmm. Uh, what if it becomes a political body? Meaning, uh, we all don't have national health care in this country. By demanding one, all every single body in this country is suddenly political. Um, now, in America, to say that we want a national health care is a radical leftist statement to make. Uh, which is absurd if you go to any other industrialized country in the world. It is a conservative statement to make. Most conservative people in the industrialized countries in the world believe in national health care. Uh, if you are in UK, pretty conservative country considering Brexit. Mm-hmm. Most conservatives in UK would say, yeah, sure, we have to have national health care. Um, I'm not even talking about Sweden or Norway and so forth, which are slightly more liberal or a lot more liberal than UK. Say, France is not exactly a liberal country right now, but definitely national harka. Uh Kind of the same thing. In America, it is very, very not a centrist view. So what kind of freedoms are we talking about? Are we mm-hmm. talking about illusions of freedom? I mean... The word freedom is so relative, it's such an abstract word. When we try to put it on particular perspective of our moment in time, we realize, well, maybe we just have a picture of freedom. Mm -hmm. We are only free as long as we are not precluding corporations from making their buck. As soon as there is a whistleblower who says something that is not supposed to be said, as we have seen, in recent years, they immediately go to prison. Mm-hmm. You and I talking on a podcast about this probably doesn't hurt in a real way any cooperation. Right. But if we were revealing things that are not supposed to be revealed, we would not be having this podcast right now.
0: Yeah. And uh, Juliana Spar talks about this a lot about the way in which, in some ways, the arts has been used by the government to give people a sense of cultural uh, freedom and intellectual White freedom voters. yeah and that it's it's distracting us from the ways in which we are not free and or different people have completely different access to freedom and opportunity and you know we're not incarcerated right now uh, neither of us. And, you know, nobody cares what we say in our poems or, you know, you, if you get up on stage now at Sarah Lawrence and and say, I, I, I don't even know what the most radical, damaging thing you could say would be. But you're probably not going to lose your job. And I'm not trying to get you riled up <laughs> But, <laughs> but but part of why you're probably not going to lose your job and probably why I'm not going to get arrested for this podcast is I'm not disrupting the economy. I don't have enough power and nothing I'm going to really say or do is going to create a movement that would destabilize in a, in a real way some of the things that we're talking about.
1: And yet – one thing that art can't do and that we observe in the last 50 years, art doing a lot less of is wake up the senses. Mm-hmm. Uh, waking up the senses is one of true dangers to my mind to a capitalist system. Capitalism like dull senses. When senses are dull, people buy tomatoes in the supermarkets that don't smell or taste. Mm-hmm. And that's just a matter of for, for everything else. It's obviously happening around us. When people have no taste, they buy what they're told to buy, Mm -hmm. um, both politically and and on a day-to-day level. The purpose of art is to wake us up. And we notice in many arts how dull arts are, not just poetry, we probably would both agree it's pretty dull these days, but in so many others in architecture, how dull it is often and so forth, and I'm not here to see in gloom and all that. I'm just here to make a call for living through our senses mm-hmm. because that, in more ways than one, is a true vocation of an artist. Artist is not a saint. Artist is not supposed to give you a misty colon. If artists do that, great, but that is just one of many variations of what art can do. Whereas all artists, including those who give you a sacred colon, are by definition creatures of senses. And um, that is probably something that we can't do. And that is something that would make a difference.
0: I wanna make sure to ask you, if you have any questions for me, and I know we have to end soon, but I think the idea of the artist and their vocation as being to wake up the senses, and for what would happen if if human beings were living more in their senses, is so profound. And it, and it strikes me also that we have a very American uh, fantasy. And I think this comes from, from certain kinds of Christianity. You know, any time we get in touch with our senses, that way lies sin. You know, that way we have to work. We have to be productive. We have to live in our mind. We have to separate our spirit from the body. And this has gotten us into such a terrible living dead quality. I'm just making a speech now. Uh, which is not Killian, good. Killian. <laughs> no. I mean it just
1: uh, Zucker for <laughs> president.
0: <laughs> no, I would be very bad at that. Anyway, Ilya, I- I'm so lucky to get to be here with you right mm-hmm.
1: now. I'm lucky as well. Come on.
0: <laughs> no, it's really it's amazing. You know, I, I, I'm not asking for sympathy, but I've been basically at home for weeks. And I haven't gone out very much except to doctor's appointments and whatever. And, you know, there was a part of me that thought, oh, should I really push myself to come and talk to you? And it's no small thing, you know, to be able to talk very deeply and openly about something that I care so deeply about. And then other times I think it's totally irrelevant and who cares? And I, anyway, well...
1: (laughs) Look, we can talk about this in more than one way. Um, Yes, of course, it would be really rare for one person to change a nation. Um, But you could say that two people sitting at a kitchen table and talking about what matters pretty much make make up a church. Mm -hmm. That is what a church is in one way or another. And we have to believe that.
0: Yeah. Okay, last question, unless you have questions for me, what are you working on now?
1: Um, I do have new poems and I'm trying to finish the book of assets.
0: Mm, beautiful. Do you have any questions for me? Yeah, sure.
1: What is the purpose of life?
0: <laughs> I don't know.
1: Okay, let me modify it. Yeah. What makes a good life?
0: You know, it's it's interesting. Lately, my three sons have been asking me this question. um, What is the purpose of life and what makes a good life?
1: Now you have four sons.
0: (laughs) I mean, I think that this question is so difficult. It's so painful, especially when it's your child and you feel like you should have an answer. Like my youngest son is very afraid of death. And um, being with him in this fear, which can be very consuming, feels a little bit like being with someone who's ill or who's dying. And you can't change it. You can't fix it. You can't take the pain away. You can't take the existential despair away. But it is different to be alone with that than to be with another person, even if Your primary feeling is anger that your mother is a human being or that your friend doesn't know the answer or that there is no answer. I still think that I guess a good life is to find people who will be with you in those questions.
1: Perfect love for your podcast.
0: (laughs) I mean... I've had this weird thought lately, which I have never said out loud to anyone until right now, but there's this assumption that, and you see it everywhere on TV, in books, everywhere, that family comes first, you know, or that what it means to be a parent or a spouse is to put this person above all others and that you would do anything for them, you know, that you would give up your life for them, that you would, you know, and there is a part of me that is actually recently thinking that this is the root of all human oppression Mm -hmm. and that it's very unpopular. I feel intuitively that I would do anything to protect my children, but intellectually, ethically. This is the root of all prejudice and all bias and all hatred. Because I should not actually treat my own children or my loved ones any differently than I would treat someone else, a stranger. And the
1: way Buddhists then to say, <laughs> yeah, maybe uh, they, you know, in a very, very simple 30 seconds definition of Buddhism. Right. Is all suffering comes from attachment.
0: Yeah. I think it's profound only because I was raised an American Jew. maybe it wouldn't it would be just normal to me if I'd been raised a Buddhist.
1: <laughs> well, I wasn't raised a Buddhist <laughs> <laughs> um but I wonder if that in some ways is an illustration of indifference mm. that we see even now in America towards others because people are focusing on. Providing for those who are very near and dear to them. And that's probably the same indifference that happened in Poland or Germany or Ukraine in the the middle of the 20th century. Yeah. Or pretty much everywhere in the world. I mean, the same indifference that watched Native Americans wiped out from the continent for the most part. People were just focusing on providing for their families, I suppose.
0: Right. And then they, you know, we have especially as American Jews, but most people have their own version of this, that the justification for doing so is having been historically victimized.
1: Well, I would argue, as a Jew of diaspora, as a Jew who does not live in Israel, I would argue that there is also um, very much a drive for justice that comes from Jewish experience. Mm Um, and that is all, you know, on the Torah. The Torah is, in many ways, the book that strives for justice. But, of course, that's a very optimistic way of looking at it.
0: <laughs> Should we end? Do you want to yeah, read? Yeah, I just want to yeah. end
1: once again stating that um, see, not necessarily the word joy, but the word census and joy comes from that the word experience, the delights of experience. I mean, we we even love our families because we laugh with our families, uh, or we cry with our families. Those things that are very much a part of literature, the, the stuff of literature, and that we are so privileged to be in touch with those things on a daily basis and to be bringing those things to others on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And I would want to end on that as a way to go forward, Mm -hmm. because I simply don't know any other way to go forward.
0: Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to Episode 72 of Commonplace with Ilya Kaminsky. This episode was produced by myself, Rachel Zucker, and by Nicholas Fuenzalita, Christine LaRusso, Doreen Wang, and Natalie Boyd. The episode was sound edited and mixed by Becca DiGregorio and Natalie Boyd. Many thanks to Grey Wolf, McSweeney's, and New Directions, and the other presses that donate amazing books to Commonplace patrons. Thank you to Omain Gruwich and Justin Smith for transcribing this episode to NYU's Creative Writing Program and Sarah Lawrence Poetry Festival. Our advisor in all things is Daniel Schiffman, and our theme music is written and performed by Moses Zucker Gorin. Thank you, Commonplace patrons, for making the show possible. And thank you, listener or reader, for spending time with
1: us.